Now this morning we have a special treat for us, and here in a few moments we're going to have our offering and, and so forth, and the ushers will be coming, and I'll pray. But after I pray, we've got some young men. We've got a boy band for us this morning. Guys, come on up. Uh, you guys come on up. This is Jonathan and Noah and Timothy, and they've been going for a while with uh, Jonathan's grandmother, Connie, over to the nursing home in Grayville to, to lead music and lead worship there for them. And I've, I've heard them singing here a few times practicing. I thought, man, you guys have got to come and sing for us one Sunday. So they're going to sing while the offering's being taken up this morning, and, uh, and then they're going to sing another special right after that, and we're looking forward to that. Now, Brother Ray, you pay attention because they're going to sing one of them songs that you, you all the time asking us to sing, okay? So, all right, he's ready. I'm satisfied with just the cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one, that silver line. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk on streets that our purest gold, though often tempted, tormented and tested, and like the prophets, my pillow's a stone, and though I find here no permanent dwelling, I know he'll give me a mansion of my own. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop In that bright land where we'll never grow old And someday yonder we will never more wander But walk on streets that are purest gold Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely I'm not discouraged, I'm heaven-bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of city. I want a mansion, a harp and a crown. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away 
When the shadows of this life is grown, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars have flown, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. To a land where joy shall never end, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Amen. Great job, guys. I know they were probably nervous getting here in front of all of us this morning. They did a wonderful job, and we're going to have to have an encore sometime. Amen, church? Amen. <laughs> all right. We're playing on it. Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a Bible underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. I'd invite you to take that. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Fifth book of the Old Testament. And please stand with me as we honor God in reading His Word together. Let's stand together as we honor God, the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning with verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for her money, for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. Verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, when his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out, of the, out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives... They shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Verse 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, 
and he is put to death. And if you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the day, the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we bow before you again and we acknowledge, God, that these words that we have read are not the words of men, but this is the very word of God. We ask, Father, that you would help us to know not only what it meant in the time in which it was written to those particular people of Israel as a nation, but, Father, that we would know in light of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ what it says about you and about how we must live today. Be gracious, Father, and teach us now from your word. May we exult in this truth for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Yesterday was Bible drill at our church, and some of you may have noticed some of our children here this morning were wearing some medals, blue medals around their necks. Blue because all of our children won first place in our Bible drill this year. Amen. Give them a hand. Y'all did so well and practiced so long. And if you've not seen our children in Bible drill doing some of their memorization work, uh, it's a blessing to watch. They work very hard. And one of the things we noticed in Bible drill is that yesterday I've noticed and noticed before is that many of the verses that the children memorize are verses from the Old Testament. Now, why is it, Miss Carol, that we are memorizing verses from the Old Testament? Why don't we just focus on the New Testament? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount the past several weeks as a church family. We encountered those verses not long ago. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, Jesus tells us this. He's clarifying something about His teaching. And He tells us in those verses that He did not come to do away with the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. That was His way of referencing the Old Testament and its commands. He didn't come to do away with that. Rather, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to, to show what it was actually pointing to. And so, until heaven and earth pass away, he says, the authority of the Old Testament, the authority of the Bible, is to reign over us, Old Testament and New Testament. We are to look to it as our authority and not think that we don't need it anymore. You know, my mom... Uh, when I was growing up, she she played the piano a lot around the house and would sing. And, and uh, an old song that she would sing is, He Touched Me by the Gaithers. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and pain. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me, oh, He touched me. That's a good old song, ain't it? She used to sing that sitting in the living room, and I made a profession of faith when I was a very young child, and I'd sit on the piano stool with her and sing with her, and I'd say, He touched me too, Mommy. He touched me too. And I was blessed like many of you have, and some of you haven't, but many of you, like myself, have been blessed to have parents, have a godly mother that taught us the Word of God, that taught us from beginning to end. And such was the case for the apostle, uh, or excuse me, was for the case for Timothy. And the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy 
and he wrote him a letter to encourage him. And he said in, uh, about Timothy that he had been taught these sacred scriptures of the Old Testament since he was very young by his godly mother. And that those scriptures were wise, were, were wise to make one wise unto salvation. The Old Testament could make one wise unto salvation. And so this is what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 about the Old Testament. Turn with me if you will, or listen carefully as I turn over there in my Bible and read these verses to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're told all Scripture, and that includes the Scripture that was being given to us in the New Testament times, all Scripture is not only inspired and breathed out by God, but it's also what, according to that verse? It's profitable. And in his immediate mind, as Paul was inspired to write these words, he was referencing the Old Testament Scriptures. He was saying all Scripture, all the Old Testament, even these difficult verses that we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 21 are profitable. And they are to reign, we are to live under its authority. Profitable for what? It will equip us. It will equip us. It it says in verse 17 that it will equip us for for the good works in which God has called us to. So when I was in the military, we were given equipment. They called it TA-50 was the the jargon that was used in in that time, the military uh, language. And this TA-50 consisted of canteens, it consisted of, of, uh, of an ammo belt, it consisted of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of goggles when we were in the desert, of, of a Kevlar helmet, of a flak vest, of all types of different things. And you wanted to go into battle fully equipped. And what we're being told by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that all Scripture, all those Old Testament Scriptures fully equip us as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ to march into spiritual battle. We need Deuteronomy chapter 21. We need the hard sayings of the Old Testament Scriptures. We cannot do without it. To be fully equipped, we need the whole counsel of God. And so as we were going through that passage of Scripture in Matthew a few weeks ago, I made a note in my notes that on Mother's Day, I would perhaps try to find a place in the Old Testament that was very difficult that spoke in relation to women and preach on that to help us again see and labor to see how the Old Testament rules and reigns over us and it is good for us. May God help me. I certainly will need His help. So this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture again, we need to see that the complete Bible, in order to be complete soldiers of Jesus Christ, marching into spiritual warfare, every single day, we need the complete Bible. Amen? Now I want you to imagine, if you would, there are some... Obviously, let's acknowledge up front, Deuteronomy chapter 21, and there's several places in the Old Testament in particular, and some in the New Testament... There are, there are hard places for us to say, why is this there? Why, why, why didn't God uh, do something about some of those situations? And, and why are these things allowed? Well, 
let me attempt to illustrate in this way. Let's imagine that there is a, a place perhaps out west and uh, a very dangerous area that perhaps there used to be a mine up in a canyon. You got that picture in your mind? It's a very dangerous place. The mining roads are, are crumbling apart. It's been shut down for years. And there's a sign at the entrance of this canyon that says, it does not say do enter at your own risk. It says do not enter. That's the law. Do not enter. But knowing that human beings have a tendency not only to be curious, but also rebellious against the law that's given, the ones who are in authority who gave that law go into that canyon and they put up guardrails along that road. Nobody's supposed to enter, but knowing that some will anyway, and know not what they're supposed to do, they place some guardrails and some measures of, of protection so that the outworkings of those people's rebellion against the law will be less damaging to them and perhaps their families if they should die or be injured. I hope that helps some for us to understand what God's doing in the Old Testament. That there are some things where God has said, We're not, you're not supposed to do that. And there's places in the Old Testament that's describing a situation that's going on that God's not pleased with. He's not prescribing. He's not saying do this. He's saying that's what they did. And so mercifully, if we labor to see mercifully, He's went in and He's laid down some guidelines. He's saying, don't go in there. Don't do it. It's wrong. It's sin. It's rebellion. And if you do, He's put up some merciful guidelines to restrain the outworkings of sin among the people of God. So, there are places like this in the Old Testament we acknowledge. This is what Thomas Watson said, a Puritan from the 1600s. A mature Christian spies mercy in every condition. A mature Christian spies mercy. We might say seeks to spy mercy in every condition. Why do we need the dark places of the Old Testament? To remind us this, folks, as we labor to see His mercy, because it's a labor. When you look at some places here, it's work. It's a labor. You think, man, what, what's it there for? What's it mean to me? Why is it that way? So you work and you labor and you meditate and you pray. And sometimes you say, I don't know, but I know you're good, God. But as you labor to see God's mercy and evidence of God's providence, even in dark places, in the Old Testament, we must labor to see in our own lives God's mercy and providence because there are some dark places in our own lives that's represented here this morning. And often in our own lives as we go through things, we have to labor to see, how is this merciful? How is this ultimately for my good and for His glory? And sometimes we simply have to shut our mouth and praise our Lord Jesus Christ and praise the God who planned the death of His own Son knowing that if He did the hardest thing for us already, we can trust Him in the hard times in our own lives. We rest in the Gospel. There are many dark places in which we desperately need to see the complete picture of who God is.
And so when we look at these verses this morning, I'm going to try to give a big picture overview uh, of these verses the best I can. I want us to see God's mercy in the darkest places. Number one, just describing the situation here. Number one, the darkest place of powerlessness. The darkest place of powerlessness. Here's the situation in beginning with verse 10 of chapter 21. We read just now. People going into battle. They're going into battle. Israelites are going into battle. They're going to a faraway city. They're not required in some of those cities that are far away to destroy every single inhabitant there. Because those cities are not close. So when they go to these faraway cities, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20, they're not required to do that, not to try to kill everybody. And so if a soldier says, man, she's pretty. I think I want to take her home. Be my wife. I think I want to marry her. Then the scripture says here, he's to bring her home. He's to shave her head, trim her nails, pare her nails, make her wear different types of clothing than she's used to. And after a month, if he decides he doesn't want her, he's to let her go. And that sounds extremely cruel at first glance. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. We must labor to see the mercy of God in this dark place. Here's a lady who's in a place of what I would describe as helplessness. She can't do anything about her situation. And God's reminding the Israelite soldier who's an authority over this lady that all women are created in God's image. He's reminding her, him, uh, in this way by giving these instructions and he's, in which he says... He's not to do certain things, and he's supposed to wait, which we'll see. When our little girl was born in the hospital on July 14th, 2009, I hope I got that date right, we did not know we were going to have a girl. We've not tried, decided up front, you know, we didn't want to know. We'd had two boys already, and... The baby, I'm there, and Deanna's there, obviously. <laughs> and I'm like, honey, it's a girl. It's, it's a girl. We didn't say, well, let's wait for two years and let her decide or it decide what gender it would like to be. We, we rejoiced that she obviously was a girl. As Kathleen Nielsen describes in her excellent book about the hard sayings of Scripture in relation to women, we are not imposing arbitrary or authoritarian distinctions on human life when we say it's a girl or a boy. We are receiving and celebrating the truth that this is how God made us in His image, male and female. So what's being said to the Israelite soldier here is even though she is a pagan, she's not an Israelite, She's a human being created, created in the image of God. And you need to recognize that if you desire her to be your wife. And this is what you need to do. 
as we take a second glance. You need to be sure that she's not exploited or abused. She's not to be a mere sex object. He has to marry her. He can't go into her. Did you notice that? Until she's grieved for a month. He cannot be driven simply by lust to take her. He must marry her. And in that day and that time, to have a husband in that time was to not have a husband in that time and to be an adult woman was almost a death sentence in some situations. It meant you might go into prostitution in order to survive in that agrarian society. That's hard for us to understand, but she should have been killed in battle, could have been, but mercifully she's not. And now mercifully God is saying, remember she's created in my image. You need to treat her that way. You must marry her first. She just lost her mom and dad. Maybe they were killed in battle. Or maybe she's maybe she was just taken as a captive. But she's, she grieves moms and dads just like Israelite women grieve moms and dads. Give her a month to grieve her, her parents. And then go into her. There's evidences of mercy here that the Israelite soldier is supposed to recognize. And if it comes at the end of that month and things are not going to work out, what's he say about how he's supposed to treat this woman? If you no longer delight in her, verse 14, let her go where she wants. You should not sell her for money. You're not supposed to treat her as property. She's a human being created in the image of God. And you see, folks, we may not appreciate this much as much in our day, but in the Canaanites, surrounding Canaanite nations, if they took a woman captive, you know what they would do to her? Well, I don't think I need to tell you. But not so for our God and His people. God says, though they be from another nation, they are created in my image. And not only is she created in my image, and you need to recognize that and respect her that way, all women need a relationship with their Creator. All women need a relationship with God. So she's required to shave her head and pare her nails and change her clothes. We think that's, that seems very demeaning. And perhaps it was initially for her when in fact what was going on is she was being faced with the reality of the transition in which she was going to, but also the opportunity in which she could become a part of God's covenant people. She's a pagan. She's on her way to hell. She believes in many gods. She doesn't know the one true God. And now, mercifully, even though there's sin involved and there's suffering on her part, yet mercifully, just as sin, the sin of others and, uh, against us and her own sin of, have, have, have taken place in our lives, yet God in His providence has used those things to drive us to the cross and save our souls. So this may happen for this woman. She may become mercifully a part of God's people. She is created in the image of God and she's created in the image of God for a relationship with God. And the Israelite soldier must recognize this in her place of powerlessness. Now, we're not soldiers taking captive women, all right? But some of us are in positions of authority over others. So certainly, one point of application immediately for us would be 
that we're not to take advantage of those under our authority. And certainly we see all kinds of things on the news about women being taken advantage of in the workplace by men that pass them up for job opportunities if they don't uh, elicit certain favors to them. We see this kind of thing a lot. It happens vice versa too. It's not just a message to men for women and all vice versa. It goes both ways. We're not to take advantage over those over us. But I hope as we labored here briefly in this first part of this darkest place of powerlessness, there is evidence of God's mercy. Even though in places where you might seem powerless right now are taken advantage of, our God sees and our God knows and He is at work. Secondly is the darkest place of marriage. Now, marriage is not a dark place. (laughs) All right? Let's clarify that up front. But there are some dark places in marriage. Marriage is not easy, is it? And here in this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 12, you see a man, and immediately we're hit with this polygamy. If a man has two wives, with no clarity about this is wrong, yet it is. Remember I said about the canyon, and God says, do not enter. God said about marriage, his do not enter sign was in Genesis chapter 2, where he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. One wife. One man, one woman, one wife. And what God has joined together, Jesus said, not a preacher or a pastor at a wedding, Jesus said, let no man put asunder. Do not enter. But knowing, as Jesus says, the hardness of human hearts in relation to marriage, God regulates when those would go past the do not enter sign and take more than one wife. And he would put up guardrails. And here's one of those. Mercifully, if a man has two wives, it's not going to work out too good. (laughs) I mean, ladies, how many of you ladies would like to have two husbands? I didn't say a different husband, I said two husbands. It just doesn't work out. Look at the polygamous marriages in Scripture. There's there's always problems. So, God says it's wrong to have more than one wife, but if... If you do, there's going to be problems. See, this man's just like you can't serve God and money. You can't have two masters, so you can't have two wives. You're going to love the one or serve the other. You're going, to, you're going to be partial to one, and that's what's going on here. One of the women are loved, and one is unloved. Literally, the Hebrew word there means hated, despised. And because of that, there's an obligation if that man has a wife, two wives, and the wife he really doesn't care for that much has the firstborn son, the firstborn son gets a double portion in relation to the inheritance. And he's supposed to stick with that. He's not supposed to change that tradition. He's not supposed to show favoritism. God's mercifully regulating this. The reality is that sin takes place among God's people, church. And God still is mercifully at work, and He is and even in this passage of Scripture in this darkest place of marriage. God loves the unloved woman, and we see evidence of that here in this passage of Scripture. We see evidence of that when God hears Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and she cries out for children. 
And her sister wife teases her and makes fun of her. Yet God hears her prayer. God loves the unloved woman. The unloved woman's husband does not complete you. Understand, this woman that's unloved in this passage of Scripture, she is still fully human. You see what I'm saying? That's why I'm saying a woman, whether she's loved by a husband or not, is not completed by her husband. They, they, they become one, but there are two whole people coming together. She's completed in the image of God. God doesn't look at her and say she's half a woman. God says she's unloved, but, but I love her. I care for her. I'm putting up these guidelines to see that she's treated fairly, even though men would often disregard it. God's mercy is present. His word to the Israelite man here is not to allow his feelings to keep him from treating his wife well. And so we should do to others. We shouldn't allow our feelings toward other people, our favoritism, or how we might like someone else uh, to allow us to treat them unfairly. Now, we don't have any polygamous marriages represented here. We're not the Mormon church. Not any that I'm aware of anyway. But we do have some women who may feel unloved or be unloved by their husbands. And truly... This is the darkest place of marriage. It would be a horrible thing to lose a spouse. I can't imagine. But how much horrible it would it be for one who has pledged themselves to you to say they don't want you anymore. I never counsel divorce. It is not God's will. Jesus permitted it out of the hardness of human hearts. He didn't ever say it was the right thing to do. But there's been situations in which men and women have come to me, told me about their situation. I've wanted to tell them. You know, part of me wants to tell them, get, divorce that guy, get, get rid of that person. But I, but I can't do that. I won't. But what I would say to the unloved woman who feels that way, is actually being treated that way, is you, let's just clarify, because this has been a lot in the news and so forth, um, you need to take steps to protect yourself and your children if you're in a situation like that. Okay? You may need to get a restraining order, separate yourself a while from the physical location of where your husband is at, but you need to take care of yourself. If it's a boyfriend taking advantage of whatever it is, you need to take care of yourself. Not saying divorce, but there's other things you can do. Seek counseling. Take care of yourself and know that God sees and God is at work in that dark place of marriage. Thirdly is the dark place, the darkest place of parenting. Parenting is a great privilege and joy. But not every morning do each of us parents wake up and say, Oh, what a beautiful morning to be a mom or a dad. Just as your children didn't wake up this morning probably and say, Blessed art thou among women. It doesn't always feel that way and it not always is that way. There's some dark places in parenting and there's a darkest place in parenting we read this passage of Scripture. It says, you know, there's, there's a stubborn and rebellious child who won't listen to their parents. A glutton or a drunkard, they are to stone him to death. That's the verses in verses, 15, in verses 18 through 21. Read this to our kids last night for devotions, along with these other passages. 
And one of our sons speaks up and said, well, I'd be dead. (laughs) And my wife spoke up and said, son, we'd all be dead. What's actually taking place here, it says a glutton or a drunkard. This is not in relation to a minor child. But kids, let it be a warning to you that God says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so you shall live long in the land. So, a parent's worst fear... Uh, and getting back to what I was going to say is it seems to be dealing with probably an older teenager or young adult who's old enough to go out and party around and, and still is at home, is not left and cleaved to his wife, doesn't have a wife. It's dealing with sons here because sons tend to be the ones who, who, who are that way, but it's, obviously it's not always that way. If there's a situation like that, the parent's worst fear is the parent's worst fear is the death of a child. But the darkest place is when a child is so rebellious and wreaking so much havoc on the community that the only solution is to put him to death. That's the darkest place of parenting. Eli in the book of First Samuel had two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Not talking about you, Eli, back there. Don't worry. We're not picking up any rocks. Eli, in Scripture, was a priest, and he had sons that were priests, and they were rebellious. They did unauthorized things as priests. They had women at the temple that they had relations with. And Eli slapped them on the wrist and said, Don't do that, boys. Deuteronomy chapter 21 is what he should have, did, what he should have went by, and he didn't. And later he died, and so did his boys. Now, anarchy in the home. Let's just pause for a moment, minute and be reminded of something about raising kids that I've got to be reminded of. What's, manifest, what's in the home is going to be manifested in a community, right? It's going to affect people around us. Anarchy in the home, not listening. It's going to cause anarchy towards authority in, at school, anarchy towards authority towards the police, anarchy towards authority and universities or whatever, where it, to your boss or whatever it might be. Ultimately, it's going to be anarchy towards God's authority. So what do, we, what do good parents do? We discipline. And it's not easy. Because our greatest fear, you know, we're not going to stone kids to death. We're not an Israelite, Israel as a nation. But our greatest fear is that our kid would be this, would be so rebellious that they would, it would be manifested that they're wrecking not only their own lives and our lives, but the lives of other people. That, that's our fear as parents. And so we, we try our best to discipline and we fail and we pick up the ball again because we, we drop it so often when we try again. But God's mercy is in this dark place. It's not the parents who execute the son. It's the elders of the city that are called and the men of the city execute. And it says in this verse, if you look at it, Verse 21, Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The mercy is there at the end. The parents don't stone him. The men of the city do, and perhaps the father participated, I'm not sure. One of the things that's interesting is you never see this practice in the Old Testament. 
There's never a case in the Bible where we see this. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But it but it happened. And it's obvious it, it didn't take place every time a kid disobeyed. Otherwise, the Israelites would have died out a long time ago, right? But it says, you shall purge the evil from among your midst. And everybody's going to fear. And so the mercy might be hard to see here, yet God is at work. God is at work because He's restraining evil in the community. God cares about His people and about His church. And sometimes we want to put our children before God and His people. And the situation here is not to stop loving the child, but understand there's more things at stake than your child. That's a hard pill to swallow. But the mercy here is for the community, the covenant community, so that evil will be purged in the darkest place of parenting. Then finally, there's this darkest place of death in verse 22 through 23. If a man's committed a crime, verse 22, punishable by death, and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. So here's the situation. you got somebody that's committed a crime. And they've been executed. Maybe they were stoned to death. doesn't say they were executed by being hung. It says they died and then they are hung up. Why were they hung up? Perhaps later. As a display and warning to all that see. That if you rebel, this will happen to you. And it raises some questions. Because God says about that, if somebody's body is hung up as a result of being executed, or even if that's the method of execution, such as crucifixion, if it's hung up on a tree, don't let it stay hung up overnight. Take it down. Now, why is that? Two possible reasons why the body needs to be taken down and why the body is considered cursed. Number one, God did not want this cursed corpse. This is a person who obviously, you look at this body, they've been, whatever's happened to them, they've been executed. Obviously, this is a person who is under the curse of God. And God abhors death. He doesn't even want Israelites to touch a dead body. That would make them unclean, if you read in the book of Leviticus. So God doesn't, he wants, he, he wants the sight of a cursed corpse out of his sight. He doesn't want it displayed any longer than necessary as a warning to the people. One day, or portion of one day is long enough. Second thing to think about, it's God is showing mercy in that this cursed corpse, this human being created in his image, who's been executed by the, the people of God, will not remain hanging upon a tree overnight because this person, though lived a, a horrible life and is obviously under, under the curse of God, this person doesn't need to be exposed to shame any longer than necessary. There's mercy even for this person, even though they're cursed, their corpse hangs. There's a possible interpretations of why that's going on. Now, before you pack up and think about going to Applebee's or down to the river to see Mama for lunch, let's, let's see the fullness of God's mercy. The God who could not stand 
to see a cursed criminal's corpse exposed to shame for more than one day, that same God who couldn't, who said, get it out of my sight. I don't even want to expose it to shame for a full day. This same God was hung on a tree for us. I love what we sang this morning, Tim, the choices of songs. Holy, holy, holy. And then, Jesus, Messiah. He became sin. Holy, holy, holy. He became sin who knew no sin. That we might become His righteousness. He bears our imperfections so He might see you as having none. Instead, complete and perfect. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is our God. The merciful God. And the full extent of His mercy and the darkest is in the darkest place of Calvary, the death of His own Son. And this is what we need to go to this morning. As you come this morning, weak, sinful, you have daily reminders, men and women have daily reminders of your own incompleteness and inadequacies based on your self-imposed temporary expectations. I sometimes call it the sin of comparison. I was at a hotel long ago, Dan and I were, and I've not seen one of these cosmetic mirrors before. And I look over, and there's this great big round cosmetic mirror with a great big runway lights beside it. And I look at it, and it frightens me because I suddenly see all the imperfections in my face, you know, and all this stuff. And there are reminders. I can see the pores in my skin and all the accompanying imperfections. And that's the way it is for many of us. And we, whether it's looking in a mirror or it's going out in the world, we're constantly being reminded of stuff we don't have. Whether it's how we look or how, how much we weigh. Somebody's got a great husband and, and you don't. You, have a, you, don't even, you don't have a husband. Or your husband is, doesn't love you. You see well-behaved kids and your kids are... You don't know what to do with them. You're not going to stone them, but perhaps they've reached a point where in application of that Scripture, they need to be turned over to the police for the good of them and for the good of the community. You see the couple walking down the street and you're reminded of what you don't have or once had. You see people purchasing new vehicles and you see what you don't have. Reminders of incompleteness everywhere. You hear the preacher preaching and talking about certain things about marriage or, or having children. And, and sometimes it seems as if the preacher doesn't care. And sometimes you live with the guilt of knowing that those people who've been blessed in that way haven't done anything wrong. But for some reason, you're mad at them. You're upset with them because they have what you don't have. There's this envy. You know that's wrong. And now you have guilt. Or you have mommy guilt. Or daddy guilt. You don't feel like you're ever doing enough. I want to show you one picture before we go this morning of Daniel Ritchie. Daniel Ritchie says that for the better part of my life, I've been known as the armless guy. 
everywhere he goes, you know, people stare at him, obviously. He was born without arms. And people watch him. He, he has legs, so he, he walks around and he'll use his feet to take stuff up off a shelf and so forth. And he gets the same comments and questions all the time from people. You can just imagine. He's constantly reminded of his physical incompleteness. But he was saved at the age of 15. And he says in an article in the Gospel Coalition this week, I'd recommend you go look it up. He says he's learned to rehearse his identity in Christ. That he's complete in Christ. He says, I still face a daily war between believing that I'm a flawed accident or that Christ has created and redeemed me with purpose. Daily putting on Christ means that I have to preach the gospel to myself. He alone, not the world, not the devil, gets to define me. So what I'm simply saying, trying to wrap a whole lot up in one here this morning, is this. Whatever dark place you may be in, a place of helplessness at work, in a dark place within your marriage, or having not been married, or in relation to parenting, whatever the situation might be, God's mercy is at work. And in those situations, you may feel as if you are inadequate, and yes, you are. God does put on us more than we can handle. He's, we're meant to lean upon Him and trust in Him and rely upon His holy word and see His mercy and His sovereignty and His care and trust in Him. Like Daniel Ritchie, what we need to do is remind ourselves who we are in Jesus Christ. Christ came to fulfill this law, this Old Testament. He came to put an end to this sin. And so we need to look to Christ and preach this gospel to ourselves. Our daily hope, no matter how dark the day or the season of life, is in Christ alone. And I would ask you this morning, have you placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the only way you're going to be able to face these dark places that you experience from time to time, whether it's in your mind or whether it's in reality on a daily basis, the only way you're going to face that is knowing that you're complete in Jesus Christ. And whether this gets resolved in my marriage or in my parenting or whatever, I am not lacking in Christ. You've got to preach that to yourself or you're not going to glorify God in those dark places. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this Word. Father, I pray that as we have labored to see Your mercy and providence and goodness here this morning, God, that we would endeavor to do so in our own lives, that we would not throw in up the white flag or, or throw in the towel. Lord, that um, we would resolve to preach the gospel to ourselves, Lord, to remind ourselves what you've done for us, that this God who looks upon man's rebellion and sin and how people treat one another and don't regard people as human and treat people as inhuman and take advantage of people in their authority and don't love their spouses like they should and are not good parents or are terrible children, whatever the situation, God, you come into this sin-wrecked world and you take upon all that sin, all that guilt yourself. And you turn and you look at those who trust in Jesus and you see them as if they have no sin. Oh, Father, help us to see the beauty of this gospel on a daily basis. The world certainly doesn't want us to see it. Thank you for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.
this rich hymn together this morning in Christ alone. And as you stand and as we're singing, if you'd like to come this morning and pray or let me talk with you about something, I'd love to pray with you myself. You come as God speaks and we're going to sing all of this hymn because it all needs to be sung. Amen. So let's sing it together and praise our God. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. 
So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.